Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. I hope you've kept your place in Matthew 28, the last five verses of this great gospel. On December the 17th, 1903, a certain Bishop Wright received a telegram from his son. The telegram was, as telegrams usually are, brief and communicated a message very important as far as both parties were concerned. It read this way, success, stop. Four successful flights today, stop. Average airspeed, 31 miles per hour, stop. And the final part was, we'll be home for Christmas. When he received this telegram, the bishop, who's a bishop in the Methodist church, had a region that he was responsible for overseeing. He was finishing up his round of visitations to different pastors in his area in preparation for the holiday of Christmas himself. He was with the last man whom he supervised, and he shared this with the man. Then he took that telegram to the editor of the newspaper in his own hometown. The man took the telegram. He put a story in the next edition of the paper. And the headline was, Right Boys Coming Home for Christmas. He missed the major point of the message. He made a great omission. He did not see, which was clearly reported in this telegram from Orville and Wilbur Wright, as they were the first ones to fly in an airplane, if you want to call it that. Many times we read the Bible and we miss the wrong message. People like me call themselves preparing a message, studying the Bible, to give you the sense of what God was saying in that passage and how it might apply to your life. And many times I have and others have left out the more important message in that passage of Scripture. This Scripture in the book of Matthew 28 carries a message that has oftentimes, if not most often, been overlooked and failed teachers like me to communicate the message God would have us as his people to receive. There's a man with the Lord now. He passed away sometime in the last 10 to 15 years. His name is Dallas Willard. Mr. Willard was a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California. He was also chairman of that department of philosophy for some time. He was a world-class philosopher by anyone's estimation. 
It was he who introduced me to this concept of the great omission. He wrote a book, not for a philosophical audience, but for anyone who would have ears to hear what God might say through this writing of the great omission. And obviously it was a takeoff on the term the great commission. And the thesis of his book is, we in the church of Jesus Christ have omitted the whole matter that is emphasized here and consequently have failed to reach the world for Christ. That's a rather bold thing for anyone to say, but I agree with him. I'd already been introduced to this very important principle in Scripture years before, and my heart resonated when I read what he had to say. With that having been said, let's dive right into this passage and see what God has for us today, beginning with verse 17. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Evidently, Jesus had told these disciples, whom we know as apostles, he had told them of a designated place in Galilee that they would have been familiar with. Remember, the headquarters of Jesus' spearheaded emphasis on making disciples was in Galilee, by the Sea of Galilee, particularly in a place known as Capernaum. We don't know when Jesus gave this instruction, it could have been before he died on the cross. I'm more likely to believe it happened sometime in that interim period between his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Lord and be our intercessor there when Satan comes against us and accuses us when we sin. Now, I want to make a correction here that's very important. For I don't know how long, at least 20 years, when I saw the word disciple, I had tunnel vision. I thought about the apostles. And probably if you were willing to admit it today, that's what comes to your mind when you think of the concept of a disciple. The word disciple is used 269 times in our New Testament. And not nearly half of them have to do with those whom we call apostles. Where do I get this clarification? Well, there's more than one place, but if we were to take time, we could go to the book of Luke, and what we would discover is that Jesus spent a whole night in prayer asking God whom He should choose from a larger pool of disciples who would serve as his apostles. Every apostle, believe it, was a disciple before he became an apostle. But obviously there were many more disciples than those 12 whom Jesus chose. Every follower of Jesus Christ technically is a disciple of Christ. Jesus described himself to his followers whom we know as apostles, in some of his last teaching in the 13th chapter of John, he said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am your Lord. He got the order correct. They had it backwards, not teacher and Lord, but Lord and teacher, master and teacher. 
Jesus is the master teacher. He is the one who is the embodiment of the truth. He is the one who says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, if you are a person who abides in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is the truth. And He imparts that truth, not just to the eleven. After all, they died, didn't they? To a man, they died. We know Judas committed suicide in his remorse over betraying Christ, leading to Christ's crucifixion. Ten of the eleven disciples, as they're called here by Matthew, ten of the eleven of these disciples who met on a designated mountain to get their marching orders for the future. Ten of those died martyrs' death. The only one who did not die a martyr died in exile on an island in the Mediterranean, isolated, known as the Isle of Patmos. And his name, we know, is John. So please, when we work our way through this passage of Scripture, the next time you read your Bible, and I hope it's soon and often, read what... God has to say about being a disciple. Let me give you a quick primer on that. Jesus says, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's comprehensive, isn't it? It's a call to discipleship. And by the way, a call to discipleship, we're going to see this morning, is a call to making disciples. It takes a disciple to make a disciple. You cannot make disciples of Jesus Christ unless you are in fact His disciple, which is a lifelong learner after Jesus Christ. Some of you are people who have a profession that required you to be apprenticed to someone, to be an understudy of someone, someone who had mastered that particular vocation in life. Well, Jesus called these 12 men minus Judas. And what he's saying to them is, men, I'm going to teach you. And granted, Jesus had more time with the apostles than he did with others. But he wants to have the same kind of time to you and me. This is one of the miracles of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and Pentecost which followed and the advent of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus says in John 14, 18. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus came to these men in his post-resurrection body and he comes to us through the pages of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds and our hearts. And He teaches us the things, the very things that Jesus taught. We have the same instructor whom they had because the Holy Spirit, Jesus describes Him this way. I don't need to beat this like a dead horse, but listen. Jesus says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper, the Spirit of truth, another helper just like me, and He will teach you how many things? All things. So we are in no deficit. We lack no possibility of knowing the same things that the apostles of Christ knew.
amazing. With such information, there is great responsibility on our part to listen eagerly and to learn what it means to be a maker of disciples. Three goals of a disciple maker. Jesus gives these to his apostles, who of course are disciples, in the book of John. In the eighth chapter he says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. One of the earmarks, the bottom line, really the basis of a being a disciple, we've got to hear what Christ has to say. If we abide in His Word, that means we luxuriate in His Word. We depend upon His Word. We listen to Him as He speaks to us. And we, with His help, apply those things to our lives, giving our attention to Him as He speaks in our Bible and through our Bible to us. In the 13th chapter of John, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciple. How will men and women know that you and I are disciples? By the way we care for each other. We have seen not too long ago, as we studied the 17th chapter of John together, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, we learn that the final apologetic for the Christian faith is the love of God's people for each other. And certainly in the book of Acts, when you read the book of Acts, right after Pentecost, how much they loved each other. The third thing that Jesus taught that will identify one as a disciple. What's the first one? We abide in His Word. We love God's Word. We come eager to hear from the Word of God. And I'm not talking about in a place like this, by all means, if we're not introduced to truth from the Word of God, we're wasting time here today. You're wasting your time. But we know the Lord wants us to be people who abide in the Word daily. What does Joshua 1.8 say? Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. How do you meditate on God's Word? At the very least, you have to read it. But you can't, I mean, I guess you can carry your Bible around with you at work all the time, but you better give your boss a good day's work and not spend his time reading your Bible. But one thing we can do, I know this from personal experience, you can be so immersed in the Word of God, you want to learn some verses, you memorize them, not so that you can impress people with how much scripture you know, but because it's the means of having a perpetual quiet time where you can meditate in odd moments in your life on the Word of God and God works in your heart and speaks to you and equips you for moments that He brings to bear in your life so you can minister to other people. Here's the third thing Jesus says, in John, this time the 15th chapter, he says, "If by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The proof of my being a disciple is I love my brothers and sisters in Christ with a selfless love. Another is that I love God's Word 
and I don't just pay lip service to it. I read it. I study it. You would expect that from a pastor. I memorize it. I meditate on it. And God uses that acquaintance with his word to bear fruit. Remember, here's the last one. That you may bear fruit. How much fruit? Much fruit is what he talks about. So here's the good news for us. We are at no loss for possibility if we know Jesus and we've denied ourselves and we are following him. We have the same capacity that these apostles had to hear from him by and through the Holy Spirit. This verse 17, Matthew 28 says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him. This is the proper approach to the sight of Jesus, to worship Him. It's almost as if they didn't have to think. When they saw Him, they worshiped Him. And this is a word which paints a very clear picture. When you see in way, the ways that this word is used outside the New Testament contemporary to the New Testament. This is one of the ways we know what the words in the, in the New Testament mean by comparing usages in the general time frame in secular use. This word was used to describe someone who knew he or she was in the presence of some extremely important person who deserved that person's homage and bowed down before the person. Sometimes the people who are described as worshiping are flat on their faces. And sometimes they even kiss the feet of and oftentimes the hem of the garment of such an individual. Matthew, when he talks about the Magi visiting the infant Christ, when they finally found their way to the habitat of this king of the Jews, they had sought out and finally found, and they entered into where that baby was. The scripture says they worshiped him. This word. These men of great importance in their own right, in their own country. This group of three, at least, maybe just two. Magi is plural for whatever the first word is that Magi comes from. Magum, I guess, I don't know. But nevertheless, what we know is they prostrated themselves before the Lord. They humbled themselves before a baby. It's the only appropriate response to the Lord to have that humility that acknowledges who He is. And then the last part of verse 17 I'm especially drawn to this. But some were doubtful. Doubtful, you say? Hadn't they seen Jesus in his post-resurrection body? More than that, had they not touched him? More than that, had they not seen him eat food and hear him say, can a ghost eat food and digest it? I'm a human being, he said. Well, what we know is even these people, some of them, it doesn't say all 11 of them, but some of them doubted. There's a companion piece to this in the book of Jude, that one chapter 
piece of literature. It's really a letter. It's next to the last of all the writings that comprise our New Testament. And in verse 22, it says, have mercy on those who doubt. Sometimes I have had anything but mercy on people who doubt. We need not to condone any kind of sin. And the bottom line of all sin is unbelief. We know that. But we need to bear with them. And how do we help them with their doubt? We don't refuse to teach them what is true. We teach the truth. And we know that the truth is the way to overcome doubt. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. And what does Jesus say about the Word of God? Your Word is what? Truth. So we're to bear with one another if there's some doubt. And we're to come and love them and care for them and share the Word with them because they are in a quandary. They may even be caught in a trap by the one who loves to plant seeds of doubt. We know his name to be Satan. Now let's look at verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That speaks for itself. All authority. The Father gave that authority to him because of Jesus' obedience to the Father. He fulfilled the mission that the Father gave him to accomplish. That mission, of course, was our redemption on the cross, paying the price for our sin. But there's another part of that mission that is oftentimes overlooked. In the 17th chapter of John, Jesus makes this statement. He says, I have finished using the same word he uses that we saw a couple of weeks ago when from the cross he says, it is finished. He uses that same word when he speaks to the Father in his high priestly prayer before he's even on the cross. I have finished the work you've given me to do. And what we discovered when we looked at that recently is that he had to have been talking about discipling those men. He wanted to give ample time to them and ample instruction so that they would be prepared for his departure. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There are seven verbs in these two verses. Apparently seven verbs. But upon closer examination, when we look at this in the original language, this is what we conclude. There is only one of those seven which is an actual verb. The others are what we call verbals. And this will challenge you like it would me, I'm sure, if I hadn't had the benefit of studying the language. It would take me back, it does take me back to the fifth grade when Mrs. Fowler taught us to diagram sentences. And it was a pain. You have to get up in front of the whole class and diagram sentences. But I'm glad she taught me to do that because I saw how 
there is syntax in the language and how the words fit, fit together to be clear so I can understand what I read. And there were participles, there were gerunds, they were verbs that function in some cases as a substantive and that would simply mean like a noun, a verbal, a verb acting like a noun. And then there were others even more which were modifiers of things like adjectives and adverbs and verbs. In this passage of scripture, it might surprise you. If I were to take a show of hands this morning, how many of you think go is the word that is the key word? How many of you would think the verb translated might make disciples is the word? Or baptizing, or teaching, or I commanded, or I am. Which word do you think would be the word that most people would say, that's the word of importance? Whenever this is done, most often more hands go up for the word go. And that's what has really come into our way of thinking about the Great Commission. But I don't want to disappoint you. And on the other hand, I do want you to understand what the facet of most importance is in this teaching. Make disciples is the only full-fledged verb. As you go is what go really means. It's an adverbial participle modifying the verb. As you go, when you go, while you go. What this says is, my life is to be dedicated to making disciples as a follower of Christ. And I'm always needing to be on the alert for an opportunity to do just that. And it's not because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus, this is just as much a part of your life as God would hope it to become as it would be for a person in my state or anybody else. As you go. As you go to Walmart. I know some of you are too cool to go there, but I'm not ashamed that I shop at Walmart. And you might ought to be ashamed if you don't because you think you're too cool. As you go to Walmart, make disciples. I could tell you more than one story, and I won't do that in the interest of time, where I've gone to Walmart not expecting to enter into a conversation with someone about the Lord Jesus Christ and really not wanting to, to be honest with you. I just want one place I can be kind of incognito because most people in my church are too cool to go to Walmart, you know, and I can go there. But I've gone in there before and the Lord prompted me to share the gospel. I can remember one time there was a young lady there who was helping me get a new phone. I'd lost my phone and I was getting a new phone. And this lady was a young lady, I would imagine in her mid to late 20s, attractive lady. She had a lot of tattoos on her arm and I sensed in my heart the Spirit of God was saying, Share Jesus with her. And I said, no, Lord, not her. Look at me. I'm an old man. I've got gray hair, what I've got left. And, and then she's going to look at me and say, oh, come on, old man. <laughs> so finally I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to obey you. 
I shared the gospel with her, not in full, but I asked her, do you know for sure that you have eternal life? You'd go to heaven if you were to die today. And she just stopped and looked at me. I was waiting for her response. She said, you're the third person this week who's asked me that question. As you go, make disciples. I could say, well, I did my deal on Sunday. I don't have to do it the other six days a week. That's for those people to do, not for me. That's one example. Or you could do it when you're driving through a fast food place. I've seen that happen many times. And fruit was born. You can do it when you've had a hailstorm and your roof is in disrepair and you call your insurance man, he sends an adjuster, the adjuster comes, gets up on the roof, analyzes the damage, comes back down, and you enter into conversation with the man who is coming to help you repair your roof. And by the way, that man was referred to me, me by one of another, a brother in Christ here in this church who is my insurance man. And that man in his 60s, has come to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he is on fire for the Lord. He's sharing the gospel with anyone and more than people who want to hear it. He's just telling people about Christ. And he's growing as a disciple as we go. You don't have to come. I mean, this is a place that I should be communicating truth that could help people become disciples. But this is not the best place. The best place is one-on-one with people whom God brings into your life and my life. As you go, turn people into disciples. Of all the nations, what is the expanse of the reach of this gospel? To all the nations. The word nation is the word ethne, which is the root word in English from the Greek that comes into the series of words ethnic or ethnicity. It talks about all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing. We in our church do not believe that it is a means for salvation. We do believe that it is an ordinance of the church. And we believe you are commanded to be obedient if you know that you know Christ. But you are dragging your feet either because you're afraid to, you're afraid it's going to heighten your responsibility, or maybe you just don't know what it's all about. You were baptized as an infant in another Christian denomination. Well, look. The Lord has commanded us to be baptized. He's commanded us. And that's our coming out party. It's our way of letting people know that we are followers of Christ, i.e. disciples of Jesus. That's what it's all about. We identify with Him in His death and what happens when we baptize in our church. Immersion, death, burial, and resurrection. That's exactly what happened to you and me who know Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. God came and redeemed us. And we are people who have been made new creatures. We have been raised from the dead. 
teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This is a big part of making disciples. Jesus was a teacher. He still is a teacher. And He wants to teach people through you and through me. And you say, well, Mike, I'm not a teacher. I've not been to Bible college. I have not been to seminary. You've had all that possibility, Mike, but not I. Can you read? I'm not being smart aleck too much here. Can you read? And you ask someone, would you be willing just to sit down and read with me the story of Jesus in the book of John? And if at any point you agree to do that, and then we do it, and you decide, you decide I don't want to do this anymore, I will politely move away. You'll be amazed if you listen to the Lord and you reach out to people as you go and you get to build a relationship. You already have a lot of good relationships in your community where you live. And you offer that opportunity. There'll be people who say, you know, I would like to do that. And the power is in the Word of God. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not in you inherently nor in me inherently. It's in the Word. And God uses that to change people's lives, teaching them. Paul said, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man so that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is our calling, to be not simply disciples, but to be makers of disciples, teaching them all that Christ has commanded us through the apostles about Jesus and about how to know God. And I am with you always. Lo, I am with you always. I like that. The words translated with you always actually all the days. Do you ever have a bad day spiritually? Monday is usually my bad day or Friday. Those are my days off. You know, those are the days I get in trouble most often. I have nothing on my hands to do unless I'm behind in sermon prep, which is about nine out of ten Fridays, by the way. But what, what we know is that He's with us. He's with you when you get in your car to go on an errand. He's with you when you go to some activity that your child has in the school. He's with you as a student when you go to the university or you go to the high school. He's with you wherever you go. And He wants to use you. Remember, as you go. This is for all of us. This is awesome. And it explains largely the fact that it's been largely omitted in teaching. We've said that's good for people who are pastors or people who are missionaries. It's good for people who are elders or maybe deacons. It's good for them. But... That's their deal. It's good for all of us. It's what God's called us to be. Disciples. And disciples are made disciples in order that they too might make other disciples. You only have to be one step ahead of the person that God gives you to teach and to disciple. Just one step ahead. Continuing to grow, but one step ahead. God has a mission for all of us. We are blessed for the possibility of Samuel coming on our staff. 
We're not going to say, the pastors aren't going to say, okay, we've been carrying this missions load, Samuel. Now it's yours. And we don't expect you to do that to him. We're going to trust God to use us as pastors, not just Samuel. Samuel, Drew, and I. Use us to model what it means to make disciples and encourage you to get on board and enjoy the bliss, really, of being a man or a woman who makes disciples. We have many such people in our church. Our church is blessed, but we need many more. God wants to change the world, and He could do it in a mighty way, given time and commitment on our part from this band of people in this room. Amazing. If you were to do the math, people do it every once in a while, I've done it, and you start with one person, say, Lord, would you give me one person this year I could lead to you? And having led him or her to you, Lord, will you show me how to teach him or her to grow in the Lord? And at the end of that year, that person will be fully grown enough, not totally grown. We never outgrow the need to grow, by the way, because the Bible says in the last verse of 2 Peter, keep on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank God I love to be taught by the Lord to help me to grow so I can be more useful to Him, to glorify Him. But what we're to do, if you did the math, and then for 32 years, I haven't got that many years left. But let's say I did have, many of you are plenty young, got all things being equal, you probably have 32 years. You lead one person to Christ this year. One. You pour into her or him for another year to the point that it, at the end of that year, that person is ready and able to lead others to Christ. And that chain continues. You lead one person in the coming year from this time, the first Sunday after Easter to next Easter. One person. And you have poured your life into him or her. And then you see, ask God, give me another person, Lord. At the end of that time, there would be 8 billion people. Do the math. 8 billion people who came to faith in the Lord. As a result of your being a faithful disciple, being willing to be obedient to the Lord, do what He says, get out of your comfort zone, share Christ with people, and watch God work. Talk about changing the landscape of the world. This country in which we live is in dire need of change. But it's not going to come politically, I'm sorry. It's going to come spiritually through people like you and me who take our discipleship of being a follower of Christ so seriously that we believe that He could use us to teach others and lead others to Christ. If you know Jesus, you have all the equipment you need for this coming year to do just like that. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, you may remember how Aslan, who is the Christ figure in that series, he has voluntarily lain down his life for the inhabitants of Narnia. And it's so sad when he dies. And then after three days, he comes to life and Susan and Lucy who had observed his crucifixion, if you will, they are so brokenhearted. And then 
he comes to them and they are so overwhelmed with joy. He's alive. He lets them get on his back. They grab his mane and he bounds. It seems like according to their description, of going a city block at a time, every time he leaps, and they're on their way to the castle. And at that castle, when they get there, it begins to get colder the closer they get because the owner and king pin of that, queen pin really, is the white witch of Narnia. And she represents Satan. And then all of a sudden, here comes Aslan. And as they enter into Care Paravel's courtyard, they see all these stone images. They had been alive people at one time. And they're dead. And what they do, he comes up and he just breathes on them. If you've seen the movie, you know, if you've read the book, he breathes on them and what happens? All of a sudden, they come to life again. And then finally, he comes to one giant. And he is there and he doesn't start at the top of the figure as he had with others but he started at the bottom and he blows on the feet and from the feet up that huge body comes to life and the girls Lucy and Susan say say Aslan why did you start at the feet listen to what he said he said when the feet come alive the rest of the body lives how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news you and I can be tools in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ to help people come from death to life 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says this about you and about me he says, you are a royal priesthood. He's not talking about people in the ministry as we call it. Although he is talking about people from his perspective in the ministry. We're all in the ministry. Priests put people in touch with God and God in touch with people. Do you know, if you know Jesus Christ, you are part of a royal priesthood? And you have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light for the express purpose of declaring the excellencies of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, forgive us. Forgive me. When we get so wrapped up in our own world and our trouble that we do not focus on You and we know the inevitable response to coming before you and really taking our eyes off the world and ourselves and other people and putting them on you is that we are people who are changed and you will use us as a church and as individuals to glorify you by helping others who do not yet know you to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.